I'm sorry not to see your girlfriend. She's picking me up after this. We're spending the evening together before I return to Dartmouth, but don't tell anyone. It's a secret. She's not official yet. Is she the one? Yes. I think so. Then if I may offer two pieces of advice. Never turn your back on true love. Despite all the sacrifices and all the pain, David and I never once regretted it. Thank you. And the second? Watch out for your family. Well, they mean well. No, they don't. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show will follow the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved and diving deep into the stories. Today we're talking about episode nine called Imbroglio, which means a sort of twisted and convoluted mess. The death of the Duke of Windsor has had a profound effect on Prince Charles, who had come to recognise a true kinship with his uncle. Although Charles plans to propose marriage to his love interest, Camilla Shand, the royal family intercedes and Charles is posted to the Caribbean, whilst Camilla marries long-term partner Andrew Parker Bowles. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched it yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we sit down in the hair and makeup truck with designer Kate Hall. So we were really fortunate in that we were connected with Princess Margaret's hairdressers in Mayfair. It was just a, a super sort of heartwarming experience because they were utter gentlemen and it was really... They gave us a tiara application masterclass, which was extraordinary. <laughs> we took the whole department to go and learn how they used to deal with, you know, these tiaras on these big ball occasions. But first, I spoke with showrunner, writer and creator... Peter Morgan. Peter, we're on episode nine now, which is entitled... Imbroglio. Can we do a quick kind of recap? Because there's a wonderful kind of connection between episode eight and nine in terms of where we are with with, with the Duke, who mm. is, is very well, it, close to... It's a slightly unusual one in that it really does, you know, one episode leads straight into another. Whereas we've been doing a lot of standalone or individual episodes and in this one it really is a little two-parter <laughs> so he you know the duke of windsor has died at the end of episode eight and so in episode nine the family gets together they bury him in frogmore uh, he was finally brought back to the united kingdom but only in a coffin that's where charles at that funeral uh, suddenly realizes the way that His family members are looking at him, talking about him, that in some shape or form he might have come to replace the Duke of Windsor and or the former Edward VIII, which is a connection I'm very keen to make. I mean, there may be people who dispute that, but I think there's enough there for me to feel comfortable making that comparison. It's funny. I looked at them as I was leaving, and my mother... Father, grandmother, aunt, even my sister. And I thought, that's what they must have looked like to him. Who? The last Prince of Wales. 
poor lost soul we just buried. He wasn't like them. He was brighter, wittier, more independent of thought, more true to himself. And so they united against him. And in that moment, as they looked at me in some god-awful way, I realized I had just replaced him. He would have seen himself in The Prince of Wales. He had himself been a Prince of Wales. And there are so many things about the two men that are worth drawing one's attention to. And, and Duke of Windsor, he's right up there with Princess Diana as a sort of trauma that both shaped the country but also shook the family. Yeah. You know, his abdication is so unthinkable and it calls into question the absolute justification for monarchy existing whatsoever. Uh, so there are really interesting parallels between him and Charles. And, and it goes back to something that I started in episode two of this season, which is where Prince Philip and Elizabeth are talking about Margaret and they're talking about whether to um, give her any more duties, whether they can trust her to. And, and Philip's advice is, no, you, you can't trust her because she's dazzling and dangerous. And, and then there are two strains to this family, the dutiful and uh, the hmm. dull, but also the dazzling and the dangerous. And the Duke of Windsor, formerly, you know, Edward VIII, he was definitely dazzling. There are a lot of things that really draw me to him, but, mm-hmm. uh, not just as a writer, but also as, as a human being. You know, I, I, I feel for them because I feel for both him and for, and, and for the Prince of Wales because, I mean, that, this involves us doing a slight detour and going back to Queen Mary, if, if you'll allow me. But yeah, if, if we go back to Queen Mary and George V, they were obsessed with preserving the monarchy at a time where uh, the monarchy was coming under all kinds of threat. You know, there were revolutions happening in all corners of the world and, you know, monarchies had never been a more conspicuous or, you know, obvious target. And so the idea of keeping the British monarchy afloat required them to be perfect as a family and 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 that's with this idea that we're now used to, you know, about them striving or struggling with these ideas of perfection. That's where it all really started, was that, you know, given that it would only take the slightest thing for people to want to overthrow the monarchy in the way that they had in Russia and in other countries all over the world, that that they needed to be kind of just perfect. And so a lot of pressure was put on the eldest son, David, who became Edward VIII and the Duke of Windsor. And, And he was deprived of parental love. I think he had an extremely challenging time with his father, and yet he was this naturally very gifted child, bright and charming and and a really charismatic individual. And yet charisma was was not just discouraged, it was abhorrent. Because the minute he's an individual, he's bigger than the system or bigger than the idea. And you have to subsume to the idea and the opportunities to live the lives to which they're best suited. Um, I think that Wallace Simpson, it was it was always rumoured that she had all these sexual arts that she'd learnt on her trip to the Far East. You know, that was that was what people said. <laughs> she once went to China and learnt sexual arts. Um, I think it was Never just... Never let her in the country again. <laughs> yeah. Well, she knew devilish things. And uh, I think it was just that she was nice to him. 
uh, you know, and I think it was just that she didn't torment him. She was just nice to him and I think accepted whatever his limitations were. It's also really interesting, well, I find as well, that the Queen was really torn because, you know, he was... They had a relationship before he abdicates. And the favourite Uncle David. Yeah, and we, we see points of that throughout every season, really. She's really torn between her kind of personal emotions towards him and her kind of duty as how she should react to him. I think she, it's probably because she didn't make, to the same extent as her mother, the connection between Edward VIII's abdication and her own father's death. Whereas I think the Queen Mother made a straightforward association between, you know, that the, there was a clear causality and, and mm. a connection. Because it's it's that scene between when she goes to visit him and, you know, and he's, he, he, when he hears she's coming and the first thing he's like, he has to get out of that bed and he has to get himself no, ready for her. No, that's absolutely true. Is that, it? Yeah, yeah, that's all on, that's in public record. The fact that he put himself in a suit with the tubes coming out, you know, uh, that, that very close to death and, with, you know, attached to a number of tubes, he, he was still putting on his suit and standing up, you know, for the Queen. That yeah. was actually filmed the day after Olivia won her Golden Globe in... Uh, <laughs> it may have been a Golden Globe or maybe it was her Oscar. I think it was her Golden Globe. It involved an overnight flight. Okay. Oh, wow. So she'd come from America and she... Uh, I know that she did that scene. And I remember watching... I remember thinking, oh, no, we're not doing that scene the day after she... And she came back and nailed it. Uh, but she was utterly exhausted and had had no sleep that night. But it's also, I think, the kind of way that the royals deal with love. I mean, it's a brilliant soap opera within the royal family. It's an imbroglio. <laughs> uh, uh, because because the, um, the thing to draw people's attention to, of course, is the fact that... Um, I mean, you know, imbroglio is just a nicer, more beautiful word for mess. Yeah. It could easily be called mess. and Or, or twisted mess, mm -hmm. you know, and probably not that well known is the fact that you know Charles and Camilla had an established relationship prior to Charles meeting Diana and that I think two assumptions are made one that Charles met Diana and then cheated on Diana when he met Camilla I think that I think that's what most people yeah. would say if you stop if you did some polling in the streets <laughs> uh, they'd be surprised to hear that Char you know the relationship with Camilla predated Diana also surprising would be that it was more of a one-sided I mean all all the research and the evidence and the conversations that I'm having suggest that well that Camilla was pretty devoted to her husband is it true do you love Andrew it's complicated nothing complicated about it it's a yes or no answer do you love him I spent with you. The more I got to know you, the more my feelings changed. Transport is waiting, sir. Obviously not enough. But that's not true. Whatever anyone tells you, you must believe that my feelings for you are real. Then why have we allowed them to do this? Because apparently this way it'll be better for everyone. In the long run. It is said that all love stories are in fiction. The great, it's all about the impediments to the love and the threats and the blocks and 
And this is full of it. This has got so many. It's just like a, you know, it's like the Grand National in terms of the hurdles they have to get over. And we know that uh, Mountbatten had become frustrated with Charles's antics and that he had, you know, he'd been sowing his seeds, which is what Mountbatten had originally encouraged him to do as a young man. And Such a horrible phrase. Yeah, right? <laughs> That, that's what it was, he was expected to do mm-hmm. because there would come a time where he would also then be expected to settle down with someone. And the assumption is that you don't, you know, you settle with the appropriate person and then you can find your happiness within that somewhere. I mean, if you find it with the person, I mean, great, but no one's expecting you to. And everyone will also help support and provide a way to find your happiness outside of that as long as you know that still is functioning and i think everyone understands the rules and and uh and that's the way it's done and it's only tragic for everybody when you want to do it differently i want to talk about this the whole idea though of partnerships because you know this is part of it the idea of having the right person by your side be that in marriage be that in office would that be the queen and her prime ministers and the queen and philip or charles and who he chooses and ends up with sort of thing. That's a really fascinating and brilliant dual carriageway of relationships almost. There's no question the show would, no matter what we did, no matter how hard we tried, and I say this with no, it would be hard to avoid it being soapy in some shape or form if we didn't constantly have one foot in the, as it were, business side of things. And it's very easy, you know, because it's so seductive to get drawn into this whole business of the family relationships. What do they really feel or what do they think about one? You know, my first love, as it were, in this whole ridiculous area that I've now become trapped in um, was the Prime Minister's audience. You know, so what happened was I, when I wrote those scenes in, in, in in the original movie, The Queen between Blair and the Queen, I had such fun and I felt free because, you know, they're unminuted and you know that there's this covenant of trust between Queen and Prime Minister that they never, unless you're Boris Johnson or David Cameron, but, you know, they never say what happened or what was said. And so I thought, well, that's great. I can go there and I have a licence to cause trouble or or, or, or imagine. Play. Yeah, just to play, for God's sake. And that, I, I so enjoyed that and I so enjoyed the ludicrousness of it really these two people sitting in chairs talking politely and yet at the same time that was the private audience between head of state and prime minister so if we stray if the show strays too far from that i think it's no longer the crown it it no longer becomes the thing that i'm interested in and and it is it's very easy to get drawn into these into a family drama because television just loves a family drama and even the, the shows we all i mean star wars is just a family drama for heaven's sake you know these sagas family sagas they are particularly well suited i think to long-form television mm. and yet if we if we don't go back to that tuesday afternoon meeting between these two often completely ill-suited people the show loses its soul i think the closer that we get as well to current day present day so many of these people are still around and these are stories about around their lives do you think about that a lot is that at the kind of forefront of how you deal with things delicately but with integrity for your art and for dramatizing I, I was thinking about this last night actually in conversation with someone you know just on a just at just at supper and, and I've been reading about it a lot uh, I've been reading 
uh, Hilary Mantel's Wreath Lectures recently, which are just sensational, uh, uh, you know, about the responsibility of the historian or the or then the novelist, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I do think when people are dead, you as an artist bring them back to life, and, and there's an act of kindness in that. When they are alive, it is different and much more challenging. And I, I have to think long and hard. These are cultural and historical figures of enormous significance. And documentaries or well, documentaries is one thing, but but news or print journalism is not enough. I, no. I, I think that sometimes something really something really requires a dramatist or fiction or art to explore it because you can reach different truths. Absolutely. History cannot help but be a set of falling dominoes. And um, in the same way as all our own lives, you know, we are the product of whatever trauma our parents went through and they've inflicted some of that for better or for worse and usually quite innocently on us and we will continue to pass it on and everyone has to deal with what they're given and what they then take, Hmm. you know. And interestingly enough, in this episode, as much as there's uh, a mess, an embroiled mess going on within the personal relationships, there's also a mess going on within the country. You know, the miners, strike, three-day weeks, blackouts, all that kind of thing. If it were the occasional blackout, I would understand. But when it disrupts everyday life up and down the country, indeed threatens lives, threatens law and order, I do begin to wonder whether we really have taken the right course of action. Ma'am, the government is not to blame. The National Union of Mine Workers has been given every opportunity and has rejected offer after offer. Our last, a a more than generous package worth £48 million, was met with wholesale contempt. But that does not explain the blackouts. I distinctly remember you assuring me that the government had stockpiled enough coal to weather any storm, and yet... Here we are. It's true. Uh, The strikes have lasted longer than we anticipated. Uh, And the stubbornness of the miners and unions has been considerably more violent. I think we can safely say there has been stubbornness on both sides. And one does wonder if we have failed to understand the scale of the miners' anger. Indeed, if we have failed to understand them as people. I would come home from school into blackout. I would do my homework. We'd have supper in candlelight. I mean, I have incredibly clear memories of it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was very excited. I remember when it it was Heath. I remember the two things I remember about Heath really vividly as a child was that my refugee parents thought what a good man he was. And the reason they thought what a good man was because he was a passionate European. And he was totally and utterly committed. So he, he was a a conservative politician and 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 I mean yes he was to the left I mean certainly you know he was he was what Thatcher would have called a wet but but he was still a conservative po- uh, politician whose number one priority was european you know that we be part of europe and and you know and yet heath was a it was a great political failure and and the failure was a different you know it was a it was a crisis of a different kind that was tearing the country apart uh, between the trade unions and and, and uh, the government, and um, and it was really riveting revisiting that for me because not just from the point of view of Britain's relationship to Europe, but also from the point of view of a country being absolutely torn down the middle uh, and uh, being like an you know like an eagle with two heads facing in the opposite direction. The country really yeah. was like that. Where was Elizabeth in that split? I I think I projected upon her. In, in one of the audience scenes that she was frustrated by the government not understanding the miners. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's really, that's just an educated guess. I don't know that that would be her position. I think also if you, if you infuse that with a strong Christian faith in the way that, 
you know, Christianity and care and equality and a, a sense of brotherhood, as it were. She would find her way to a left of centre sensibility through her Christianity. It's also really interesting to think now that you're, it's in your lifetime. You know, you talk about your vivid memories of coming home, blackouts. So you're now writing within a world where you exist which is quite interesting to think about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I, you know, that's the thing about the Queen as a symbol. She's such an all-pervasive symbol that she is the connective tissue between your grandparents, your parents, you, your children and your own grandchildren. You know, she's been there now for so long. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it really is like that. You feel even in the years that you haven't necessarily got conscious memories... Uh, she feels like that, that sense of continuity and permanence. I must admit, my Lord Mayor, that the first 25 years of marriage have rather crept up on us. I'm not much given to philosophizing, but from time to time, one is presented with an opportunity to reflect upon what has contributed to the success of something. And in the case of our marriage, it's family. The rock upon which any enduring marriage must surely be founded. A network of brothers, sisters, mothers and fathers, cousins and relations. A filigree of a thousand tiny threads woven together by blood, kinship and trust. Next, I had the chance to speak with hair and makeup designer Kate Hall in her truck. I can't quite believe I'm here, but I'm sat in the main makeup truck. This is our king unit. The so king two unit. Parallel units, king and queen, and this is our king unit main principal truck. The, the whole thing for me, anyway, being a fan of the show, has felt like with season three and the start of it, so much changed, not just the cast, the whole aesthetic almost of the show sure. has really changed. Yeah, and moving into a new era. I mean, actually, we we sort of traversed a huge amount of time in season three so for us it was it was also about trying to plot how you move through visually very different eras to bring us up to the start of season four yeah i've just been flicking through one of your many bibles as you title them is this where you start i don't know if that's sacrilegious <laughs> but yeah so i am really lucky with the crown in that the investment in research is is so strong that i started working obviously many many months before we started shooting to research and just really bedded in with all the images and loads of video archive and had to create these books really for myself as a reference because when you get going on a job this big with 200 odd cast and like i said traversing periods over mm. 13 years you sort of need an anchor to know when you're going to move when you're going to change when do the shapes change when do your crowd change and also plotting the lives of these really well-known principal characters so for me it was about becoming as familiar as I possibly could be with all the images and using them as an anchor but then also they were a springboard and they were sort of yeah. instinctive it's a fine line isn't it between getting the look right for the historical character but then you also need to be a little bit free for the actor 
to be that character. Does sure, that make sense? Absolutely. And it really felt like a process and one that I think we've become quite good at. It's a sort of a, a niche thing where you're you're trying to have integrity, you're trying you're really committed to the original character and what they look like. But you're also dealing with a human being and you and no one on the crown is interested in mimicry. Yeah. We are all committed to authenticity and so our process is about examining the pictures and finding that kind of comfortable place where the real character and our actor meet so that we can do something that feels real and Mm. feels authentic and is exciting and typically actually what we do is we start giving it everything we've got and we might try (laughs) fake teeth you know we might try contact lenses Mm -hmm. and but actually what you find is that somehow there's a clumsiness and there's an inauthenticity to all of that and that when you start to strip away those things Mm -hmm. you'll find a few little kind of things you can hang your hat on that feel real and beyond that you just have to let the actors act and and we certainly felt like the more barriers we put in front of them you know we tried we try contact lenses with Olivia and it was hysterical I mean it was it was so obvious that it wasn't a goer because for a start we sort of had to kind of crowbar them like she had to be pinned down and then and then they were sort of crowbarred in and actually she does everything with her eyes so to Mm. put a physical barrier in front of those eyes just felt like you lost all the value that was having an actress like Olivia it was a really obvious decision but we had to sort of tick the box and try it and we did we tried everything it's so important that it feels real yeah. uh, the drama in the crown is at the center of everything and and so anything that feels remotely hokey we're just like well oh, get, get rid of it get rid of it <laughs> yeah. and and that isn't a decision that just comes from me you know the, the the producers are really collaborative the directors are really collaborative peter is super collaborative yeah. so there's a real circle of people looking at stuff on camera and we camera test everything for the principals in advance and really wigs are our biggest tool because they're playing really recognisable people and the biggest tool we have to alter them visually is their wig and and from my experience now what I would say is that the shape is everything and if you can create a hair shape and and an outline of a character and costume do the same thing that that says this is absolutely without question that person Mm -hmm. then I feel like we're in a good place because to be honest after that the acting is everything and the voice is everything that's really interesting so for me it's almost like getting the silhouette right for me the silhouette is and it's the same for periods so you know you can tell kind of unmistakably every period has its own shape and silhouette and we we subtly alter those and we try to do it kind of almost episode by episode so that it doesn't feel like this big visual clunky change but gradually you're saying we're moving through time Mm. well that idea that of kind of aging people and de-aging people Uh and stuff very different very different procedures and is one harder than the other yeah i mean it's it's if i knew how to really de-age people i'd be very wealthy yeah but there are tricks we used we would give the principal ladies oxygen facials and and we tried not to get too hung up on the number Mm -hmm. because again it's a performance yeah but where we could it was more about creating a breadth of story period rather than a kind of specific you are going to look 35 when yeah. you know which is not possible mm-hmm. so by using that kind of advanced skincare we could give ourselves a lovely base to start from and then i think aging is is easier 
because you're kind of using what people have got and then and then pushing it shading it and using yeah. it a bit further and we use the wigs to age people a lot because it's it's very easy to add gray hair for example yeah the tricky thing for the royals is of course that actually most of them don't change so with the queen a lot of my when i've been doing interviews the questions have said you know the queen's hairstyle doesn't change but in fact we we subtly we did kind of it's it's more boofy in the 70s it's more solid it's a yeah. more of a sort of lego hairstyle that kind of sort of yeah it's got more it's, thing, it's yeah. got more height it's mm. more square it's more textured it's less sort of flicky and curly and actually she was dyeing her hair and she had grey temples so we started to very gradually as the wigs would go back to the wig maker to have their fronts removed and replaced which is part of their regular maintenance we would gradually add in more grey hairs through the temples and then when the wigs come off at night they need redressing baking in the oven you know they're set and baked in the wig oven the wigs get baked in an oven. Yeah. So this is this is the lingo that nobody knows okay, about. So me. so the wigs obviously are knotted hair by hair onto a wig lace, okay. and then they are blocked up onto a wig block with galoon, which is a ribbon and pins, and then we wet set them. But the the wigs are knotted hair by hair in different directions to mimic a hairline. Oh my God including mohair which we use around the very very front to soften the look on camera, and then. Basically, once they are knotted, they come to us. They've already been fitted onto the actor. Yeah. Then they are cut, maybe coloured a bit more if necessary. And then for every performance, they are wet set on rollers in different directions for different shapes and periods. And then baked in an oven, you know, to a really sort of uh, crispy finish, typically. And then they they cool down and then they're dressed out by the team day to day into different looks and shapes. So Helena, Olivia, all of our different characters will have multiple wigs to allow for dressing for different scenes and different looks. Um, because obviously you can't do everything yeah. when you finish on wrap at the end of the day. Is there like um, a specific wig oven or are we talking yes. just a... this is the wig oven, which is this... Um, it's actually a oh, 1950s wow. vintage clothes dryer. Oh, wow. Um, and they, we have wig ovens on every truck. Um, basically, it basically looks like a giant recycle bin, basically. But yeah, it's, but it, it heats up. It heats up. And all the men's wigs will get baked for a shorter amount of time, but you can see where we use pins to dress them to get the hair moving in different yeah. directions. And then That's what it. happens as you cut the lace as far back as possible so that when you glue it to the forehead you can't see it as you're cutting it back you start to lose your fine hairs with every application and removal and wash and set and so eventually you lose hair after hair after hair until what you're left with is a really hard edge which you can't really carry off on camera and at that point the entire front of the wig is removed and replaced with a new front and all of that hairline is individually knotted again so part of the the stress of of filming on this schedule is trying to manage that refront schedule because it goes off for at least a week maybe two film lace is a very you would describe it by denier like you would tights and for high definition it's the finest denier lace possible so it's tiny tiny little holes in this uh, I don't even know if it is nylon you know yeah. I should ask the wig maker because I should know that do you go as far as kind of I'm assuming the queen has 
a hairstylist who does her hair, I don't know how often that would happen, but going into that world and researching actually how... Yeah, so we were really fortunate with season three in that we were connected with Princess Margaret and the Kent's hairdressers in Mayfair who were still working together. They're two friends who work in a Mayfair salon in their 70s. They now do sort of one week a month and they still have all their same clients from the 60s wow. and Joseph has actually written a book about Margaret but he used to go to Mystique with her and they they brought in a collection of her hair pieces a lock of her hair so we could look at the colour oh um, so yeah and I took Helena to have her hair dyed and, and cut by them so she could chat to them it was just a, a super sort of heartwarming experience because they were utter gentlemen and it was really they gave us a tiara application masterclass which was extraordinary (laughs) we took the whole department to go and learn how they used to deal with you know these tiaras on these big ball occasions so again even if you whatever you end up disregarding everything stems from this pursuit of sort of truth and, and and historical accuracy couple of others that I wanted to talk about specifically Joshua Connor as Prince Charles I say this all the time because it comes up in every interview about how extraordinary he looks and it's it's a haircut and a parting <laughs> and it's it's all we do but the parting is fastidious yeah. it's measured with a tape measure is it absolutely so we what measure we talking? how many centimeters we talking I mean I couldn't actually tell you because okay. I don't look after <laughs> shamefully but um yeah no they measure they measure from the ear up and then the length of the parting and it goes all the way down to the crown earpieces no okay just joking <laughs> I know it's just his own glorious ears <laughs> Another favourite moment for me was Harold Wilson. We have this totally heartbreaking scene where he tells the Queen that he has Alzheimer's and that he has to resign. And for us, we had this wonderful thing, which again rarely happens, where there is an episode's break, two episodes break, where you don't see him. So you're able to affect a change without it being difficult schedule-wise. And, and Louise Coles, who looked after Wilson, just did the most beautiful, sympathetic, subtle special effects makeup wow. that kind of broke yeah. my heart. And it's, I know it's just makeup like it all is and, and mainly it was about acting but the, the kind of tender touch with which she picked that level it was it was a really beautiful moment and I I remember seeing it on camera and just being blown away by it sometimes those subtleties can be incredibly powerful that's the thing One of the characters that really stood out for me and I wanted to talk to you about as well was, was Wallace Simpson oh. uh, who you know, made a, made a massive impact in the world. But I think in terms of the performance in, in this is great as well. I adored Geraldine. And again, the casting. Can you imagine when that casting came in and you just thought, oh, of course. And she, she's really fun. She's really playful. She has these two, like her dad, Charlie Chaplin, she has these two dots underneath her eyes which she puts eyeliner on and I thought they were tattoos but they're not then these natural kind of beauty spots under her eyes and it's extraordinary Um, and her dad had them as well yeah and we cover those up actually for that you don't notice them but she she has this incredible sort of I felt kind of almost bird-like manner about her and she came to the again she came to the fittings 
as most of our cast do, very open, openly. And we just really went for it. And I loved the eye. You know, in England, we have a very kind of apologetic um, stance with makeup. We don't like to admit that we're doing makeup and we like to do everything beautifully, subtly. And of course, with Wallace, it was a real look and it was really sort of outspoken. And, and Geraldine just was just kind of mustard keen to go for it so we did these kind of very spidery eyebrows and and loads and loads of mascara and eye makeup and I thought she wore it very very well yeah yeah I agree well I think you've done an extraordinary job you, you and your team and thank you for your time thank, thank you, you so much it's lovely to meet you you too I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode Peter Morgan and Kate Hall the Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of the final episode of season three called Cri de Coeur, which focuses on Princess Margaret, her failing marriage and the moments leading up to the Silver Jubilee. Ask yourself, in the time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved? You've been calm, stable and useless and unhelpful. This country was still great when I came to the throne, and now look. So much for the second Elizabethan age, which Winston talked about. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy. We paper over the cracks. And if what we do is loud and grand, confident enough. No one will notice. And all around us, it's fallen apart. That's the point of us. Not us. Of you. You cannot flinch. Because if you show a single crack, we'll see it isn't a crack, but a chasm. And we'll all fall in so you must hold it all together. Must I do that alone? There is only one queen. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.